I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from the UAE. It's the dawn of the multipolar era marked by decline of US empire amidst slaughter in Ukraine and Gaza. And as more nations align with Russia and China in opposition to the US-dictated so-called rules-based order, what should we expect? Joining me from Canterbury in the UK again is Professor Richard Sakwa, Kent University's Emeritus Professor of Russian and European Politics, who has just published the lost piece, How the West Failed to Prevent a Second Cold War. Thank you so much, Professor Sakwa, for uh, coming back on. I'm not going to talk so much about uh, what the West is, what a Cold War is. Um, actually, maybe I should start by saying, can you forgive some readers reading your book who see you chart the change from charter system to rules-based or Washington rules-based, thinking Washington must be neutralized, military attacked at all costs, given how we have got here? Uh, that would be an understandable reaction because quite clearly the track record of uh, the what I nowadays call the political West since 1989 has not been spectacular, uh, except in terms of failure. Given the fact that at the beginning, 1990, it looked as if there would be uh, a better way of working. Remember the Soviet Union and the United States and other powers joined together to reverse Saddam Hussein's attack on Kuwait. But uh, then, of course, uh, in the years in the Balkan conflicts, the bombing of Serbia in 1999, and so many other incidents, it's quite clear that uh, the West used its enormous preponderance of power in an irresponsible manner. You quote from so many different sources that today we associate with the neocon right, neoliberal right, I don't know what term to use, who it surprises one. Because uh, today they'll say, go for all-out war with China, go for war with Russia. But even they were warning that the expansion of NATO would, uh, in the end, reduce U.S. power, perhaps. Yeah. It's important to remember that this uh, rules-based order, the political West, call it what you like, the liberal international order even, it's certainly far from homogenous. And it's very important to understand that there is debate even within the system. And of course, uh, a generation of politicians of the old school, all the way from Hans Morgenthau, Reinhold Niebuhr, and of course, George Kennan warned against NATO enlargement with, and even Zbigniew Brzezinski said, NATO enlargement without an overarching pan-European security order would lead to disaster. Now, of course, all these warnings have been forgotten. Unfortunately, their warnings have actually come uh, to take place. So, and of course, the West is doubling down on its positions. Clearly, many in the Global South won't mourn the death of Zbigniew Brzezinski, author of The Grand Chessboard. You quote him in the book, I mean, saying... European states, no more than really vassal states with no sovereignty in all practical terms, you suggest, uh, him saying. I mean, is that true now when we look at Western Europe, if we turn to Western Europe for a second away from the great powers? Are, they, are we just going to see their decline? I mean, you're, you're there in Britain, actually, speaking to me. Yes. I, I call them, uh, sadly, uh, legacy great powers. And unfortunately, their political activity and, you know, what we'd say in political science, their agency has been undermined because quite clearly this political West and US-led alliance system has uh, disempowered Germany, France, Italy, the serious powers on the continent. Uh, even just to look just before the conflict in Ukraine in early 2022, we had Olaf Scholz, uh, Emmanuel Macron, both going to Moscow and, in my view, correctly and admirably trying to avert the war. 
And uh, yet, but they could do nothing because the decisions weren't taken in Paris, Berlin, or um, they're taken elsewhere, obviously in Washington and in uh, NATO headquarters. So uh, it, it's a very sad testimony, despite endless talk of strategic autonomy. Worse than that, the European Union itself, instead of coming forward with peace proposals, has been the greatest cheerleader for conflict, which is, uh, you know, something completely repudiating its origins as a peace project. You see, one could make the case that Britain, where you're speaking to me from, is just an aircraft carrier for the United States with all its U.S. military bases uh, masquerading as RAF ones and all the military troops. But you know that if uh, President Macron could. Uh, and we invite him, appear on this program with us right now, he'd say, what are you talking about? And you mentioned them uh, kicking out the bases, the French uh, in the, uh, mm. what was it, the 40s, the 50s, uh, US bases. And, you know, you see the odd uh, uh, anti-US vote at the United uh, Nations, the unwillingness to go in with the Iraq invasion and so on. Yes. Uh, indeed, it was uh, de Gaulle who um, threw uh, the bases out in the 1960s and uh, took the France out from the uh, political, uh, the, the military, uh, United Military Command. Uh, but of course, um, it was uh, Sarkozy who, uh, in the late 2010s, took France back in, and Macron pursued that, you know, vigorously Atlanticist policy. Um, so uh, the, the key point here is that. Contrasting to this Atlanticism, which leads to the disempowerment of Western Europe, you know, we, a lot of us have been putting forward neo-Gaullist ideas, the idea that, you know, pan-continental unity. This is an idea of de Gaulle, it was an idea of Gorbachev, of course, which when he launched uh, Perestroika, the common European home, and it was an idea of François Mitterrand. And there's still, you know, residually a, a type of Gaulism which says, you know, Europe should take control of its own destiny. And we're talking about Europe all the way from Lisbon to Vladivostok. And that's the only way in which we can begin to frame some sort of new peace and security order. I suppose European powers would say, oh, but we are. We just happen to be uh, in support of the uh, US war on Russia through Ukraine. It's actually a European war that Europe is involved in. I mean, uh, Russia obviously claims that uh, it intervened after it was clear that NATO-backed genocide was occurring in, in Donbass or on the cards after so many people had uh, been killed after the uh, Maidan coup. Why is it then that other regions haven't changed as much? The Arab world, say, with Gaza. Why do other regions don't go to war the way Russia goes to war to protect uh, what it sees as its speakers or uh, community? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't use the word genocide. I think that it's used on all sides, uh, perhaps too too flippantly, too lightly, because genocide is obviously, uh, you know, a catastrophic attempt to eliminate uh, a people. In okay, whole but world I suppose part. in the here in the Middle East, genocide is being used by important uh, uh, non-aligned yes. groups uh, well, because indeed, it is the wiping out it, of an ethnic uh, population in Gaza, obviously. We're certainly seeing a catastrophic attack against a, a whole people, absolutely. And of course, on a, on a different sort of scale, uh, we had that in, um, not, not not just in Ukraine, we've seen it, uh, the, the failure to incorporate uh, national communities in Latvia and Estonia. Uh, in the Middle East, of course, uh, we, we've come to the culmination of what has been 70 odd years, if not far longer, f failure to establish a framework for uh, different communities to live together. And uh, when you say, I mean, Russia attacks, um, 
Yes, um, and not to justify it or to condemn it. It's clearly, it was the failure of the European security order to find a comfortable place for Russia and Belarus and others in the post-Cold War framework, which led to a an intensifying security dilemma, which led to the conflict which in which we're now embroiled. I mean, I don't know how much colder the... Uh, I, I mean, the question there actually was, why is it the Arab world doesn't react the way Russia acts or we expect China to act when the South China Sea becomes uh, the subject of more intervention by NATO forces? Well, the uh, I mean, there's no leading power. China, Russia, of course, are nuclear powers. In the Middle East, we have uh, a series of contending, contending powers. What is astonishing, of course, is the way that recent events have really totally changed the geopolitical framework. We've seen already China intervening to achieve some sort of rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. We're seeing all the states of uh, of the Gulf uh, elsewhere uh, repudiating, you know, not, I mean, not formally yet, the Abraham Accords and that whole framework of peace. Uh, and I think that after this conflict, and I hope it'll come as soon as possible, the whole chessboard has, to use Brzezinski's term, has been upturned and we really have to go back to basics. US and of course every power strategy has failed and we now need both on the European continent and in what we now call Southwest Asia a whole uh, rethinking of security and a whole new framework within the framework of the United Nations to make the charter system as I argue in the in the book really work the way it should do and it's the only framework we have to achieve some sort of framework for peace and development. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of doubts about that, given how violent a year it's been. But then how do you actually uh, foresee the nature of the collapse of uh, Euro European power? I suppose one could say that's already gone to an extent. But as the economies collapse, do you expect mm -hmm. them to become states of the United States? Or are the publics mm -hmm. of Western Europe going to uh, rebel? Are we going to witness some kind of rebellion by the uh, masses in Western Europe against their leaders? No, I think that's exaggerated. Clearly, uh, Western Europe has been marginalized geopolitically. It has been suffering economically. And it's also a crisis of political representation as in terms of, uh, reflected in terms of the rise of various so-called populist movements. We've already seen the election results in Slovakia not long ago. And of course, Hungary stands firm in its view that this war, uh, the Ukraine war is was quite clearly avoidable and, sh and we must go to some sort of peace framework as soon as possible. Uh, but no, Europe is marginalized. The decision-making is in Washington and uh, we have to wait for Washington to resolve issues and of course it's got an election coming up and so therefore uh, you know there's a whole stack of you know trend lines meeting uh, in 2024 and in my view 2024 is going to be a fundamentally uh, decisive year in southwest southwest asia in european politics and the whole uh, pan european and atlanticist context I mean, some people, uh, you're going to raise some eyebrows in Beijing with your mention of uh, uh, human rights in uh, amongst the Uyghurs. People can watch our interview with the Uyghur activist. Uh, it's quite, uh, quite eye-opening, I'd say. Do you think we're going to see the end of uh, British, European Union, nation, United States weaponization of human rights to attack these rising powers that you describe in your book? 
Well, I mean, human rights uh, isn't, I mean, it's it's a fundamental issue if it's framed in terms of human dignity and development. Uh, and of course, it has been weaponized, and I think uh, appallingly. This doesn't mean to say that the issue, the substantive issue disappears. And of course, I think everyone uh, at this stage has to start thinking on how to move away from this endless Cold War style militarism, which I condemn in the book, and suggest that you know there, there is a framework. It, it's extraordinary, given the enormous technological and other achievements of our time. And of course, we're all faced with uh, you know the major issue of artificial intelligence coming up on the horizon really big time, which could change social relations in a very fundamental character. And yet we're still mired in these endless regressive wars, tragic though they are, but we need to lift our eyes to a larger and wider horizon in which China uh, isn't portrayed as an enemy. I mean, we've all got uh, all but, uh, Sorry to interrupt, but we can now accept that uh, given the visits of the British Prime Minister and the US President to the Middle East, it is okay to slaughter children uh, based on their ethnicity as a means of self-defense. That is within the ambit of human rights as described by London, Washington and uh, Brussels or Berlin. I mean, in my view, their reaction has been totally inadequate. Yes, they all appeal and say it has to be within international norms, yet they've put absolutely no effective pressure on Israel to stop their slaughter. And, you know, I personally think it's, uh, you know, know, absolutely disgraceful. We can condemn, and I do, in the strongest possible terms, the events of the Hamas attack on the 7th of October, yet their response is disproportionate, uh, and of course, uh, it, it, it suddenly uh, the killing one of one person doesn't justify the killing of ten. In response, it, it's absolutely unacceptable, in my view, within the Charter International System, as indeed the General Secretary of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. Uh, yeah, well, hang, hang on, hang on, clear. Professor Richard Sagwa. I'll stop you there. More from the author of the new book, The Lost Peace: How the West Failed to Prevent a Second Cold War. After this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the author of the new book, The Lost Peace, How the West Failed to Prevent a Second Cold War, Professor Richard Sacra. Richard, sorry to have cut you off there in uh, end of part one, but uh, you were talking, of course, about Gaza. So would you say then that given what you were saying about, obviously, Antonio Guterres, Secretary General, uh, going into the Middle East, uh, events surrounding what happened this year, that more so than Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Ukraine... Gaza uh, put the nail in the coffin of the UN Charter as regards uh, human rights, given, as I was saying, that it seemed that uh, uh, NATO powers were okay with slaughter of children based on ethnicity? Mm. No, I can see why you say that, but I think the opposite. It just shows just how important the United Nations is. I mean, even its uh, relief work, of course, is fundamentally cr- critical to to sustaining whatever sort of normal life or food distribution is available. And of course, the United Nations has been paralyzed. There hasn't been a Security Council resolution. But uh, the failures or the breach of human rights and indeed international law doesn't mean to say that international law, United Nations, uh, should be abandoned. There's nothing, there's no alternative. If we don't uh, support the international system established in 1945, however poorly it has worked, uh, we have nothing 
uh, else in its place. Uh, and then, of course, we really hit uh, an international anarchy of even worse than what we have at the moment. Okay, well, if we see a near-global disgust at uh, uh, the weaponization of human rights, what about the weaponization of money transfer? You talk in the book of the end of the swift money transfer system. Of course, we saw uh, the uh, Ukraine conflict lead to an attempt by NATO powers to cut Russia off from international finance. Uh, What's your understanding of what we're going to see quite shortly about that subject? It's quite clear that the uh, um, the BRICS summit in Johannesburg, um, that's the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa alignment, uh, was talking quite clearly about the emergence of alternative payment systems. And of course, the decoupling uh, away from Western financial institutions is accelerating. The uh, We've seen the New Development Bank uh, based in Shanghai, the BRICS New Development Bank, is becoming an alternative to the Bretton Woods system, IMF, World Bank. So we're witnessing a massive decoupling and the emergence of two roughly uh, you know, equal, powerful alignments. I mean, of course, the BRICS group um, had six new members who are formally joining in January. So we're witnessing tectonic changes in international politics. Uh, this is um, something that Xi Jinping said when he visited Moscow earlier uh, this year. And it's certainly the case. And they've both repeated it on several occasions since then. So we're, lit- we're, we're witnessing and living through a time, a change of paradigms and change of system that we have not seen before. Well, when I say system, that's a mistake. We're witnessing changed balance in international politics within the international system established in 1945. And that can't have escaped the attention of US corporate leaders. Is I mean, We talked about European decline. What do you think of uh, the idea that some European, uh, while well, European businesses decline, uh, some of them obviously do, do embrace uh, what you were talking about mm-hmm. there, United States businesses, and we saw the boss of Apple in Beijing amidst all sorts of uh, rhetoric coming from Washington about China, uh, that U.S. corporate power, which is known all around the world for its power over U.S. politicians, let alone anything else, actually embracing the new order that you speak of whilst uh, Western Europe declines, and the United States is brought into this new world order um, uh, in a more peaceful world, albeit with a sort of... uh, uh, Europe, Western Europe in uh, in ruins. It's right. You're absolutely right to point out this paradox is the United States uh, should never be underestimated and its ability to reinvent itself and because of the enormously dynamic economy and society, uh, which only puts even more in the shade the fact that European leaders are enthralled to an external power to themselves and, of course, are willing to sacrifice their economic interest for what, in my view, was a misconceived vision, uh, an attempt to you know consolidate the Atlantic power system against uh, Russia and its alignment uh, and the front line, obviously, has been for many years uh, Ukraine. So it's, uh, you know, you're absolutely right that I think that the the economics uh, are moving on, international political economy is moving on and leaving Western Europe marginalised. Or is it a reinvention too far and we can expect that the United States really does engage in a hot war with, with China uh, as they have, according to Russia, with Russia over Ukraine and the Arab world over Palestine? Well, we saw that the uh, the Trumpian trade war was then continued and intensified by Biden. 
uh, of course, we, we've got election year in the United States next year. So everything um, could well, the whole pack of cards could be thrown up in a year and it could fall in unexpected patterns. I think, as I said, 2024 has got elections in the European Parliament. It's got uh, elections uh, you know, in India and other places. So it, it's a year in which uh, a lot of the patterns of the future will finally begin to take shape. I mean, I know that South Africa is the uh, S in BRICS, but do you think Latin America and Africa, to an extent, a lot large parts of it, have to wait for the death of the dollar before they truly emerge out of this uh, uh, old order? And of course, uh, B is the Brazil as well. So yes. represented there. Um, no, they, no one needs to wait. It's uh, the, the the dollar will will remain important, and of course, in all of this, I just hope that some way can be found to you know avoid this you know final apocalyptic conflict, which of course a lot of people are talking about, and that in some ways there are wiser heads, though it's hard to find them. Where in the political West? Indeed, I did. I said it's hard Where? to find Would them. Where would it? Uh, can you well, find them? You know, yeah, I know it's very hard to well. I, I mean, I Donald Trump is yeah. the uh, favourite to win uh, in 2024, and uh, his views on China are clear. Yes, yeah. No, it, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's extraordinary. But, but of course, one wonders what Trump, too, would be compared to his first uh, leadership, because clearly he was working under the endless pressure of Russiagate uh, with all sorts of other uh, constraints. Well, I wonder, because, you know, Trump is clearly a maverick leader. But some of his ideas, for example, it makes sense to get on with Russia, uh, was a sensible idea. And you know he's probably right. If he'd been leader, we wouldn't be having this war. And I wonder to the degree to which ultimately he may come to terms with China, because he was thinking purely in economic terms, mercantilist terms. But you know Biden has made it ideological. Uh, whereas Trump is a transactional leader, who knows what, what he may come up with? I mean, clearly, there's a power of propaganda in all these issues if they don't read your book. Uh, just briefly, what do you think of uh, the security of the United States' other de facto colonies, South Korea, Japan, the Philippines? What happens mm -hmm. to these countries as these, this world changes? Yeah, You've, we've seen an intensification and uh, of the U.S. alliance system, certainly with Japan fearing the rise of China. We've seen also South Korea, which is trying to maintain a certain distance, yet it was willing to supply shells to, to, to Ukraine. Uh, and of course, they also have elections, and at the moment they're in a particularly a phase, which is pro-Washington, uh, very strongly so. But uh, there's a strong movement within South Korea. But, you know, we've seen AUKUS, this uh, alliance with Australia, uh, and of course, on the other side, a tightening alliance, Saudi Arabia, uh, another Iran, both joining uh, the BRICS, a Shanghai cooperation organization may expand. India, of course, uh, plays a very important part in all of this. So we're seeing now global realignment on a scale we haven't seen. Well, we for, haven't seen the realignment, have we, in those countries, South Korea, Japan and the Philippines? I mean, they're pretty important. No, no, they've ones. intensified their alliance with the United States. So they're going to lose in the, they're going to lose out. Well, who knows who knows who's going to win that context we're in for a an epical contest a second cold war which is far worse far more intense and will be far harder to overcome than the first cold war i'm afraid we're we're locked into that for the next generation or so and how successful do you think a washington controlled censorship in countries aligned 
with Washington will continue to be. I mean, presumably using not just print media and television, but uh, obviously the internet as well. Uh, we've seen the meta being used in that way and other big tech companies. Will they successfully stop populations uh, across U.S. vassal states from understanding uh, the world that you write about in this book? Yeah, yeah, that's another uh, important point, is that uh, a Cold War is accompanied by massive communicative uh, warfare and propaganda. And uh, the, especially given the fact social media now is being, um, you know, policed and, uh, um, and broadcasters, as you well know, uh, taken off uh, off the air in certain countries. Uh, indeed, and of course, this is an intensification of propaganda and informational warfare on the other side as well. So this is one of the great tragedies of our time when really we need political dialogue, we need uh, informed debate uh, on all sides. It's being closed down. Well, I think BRICS countries are saying they're freeing up their media and uh, not uh, and doing doing the opposite. I mean, what happens then as to how, say, the European Union and Britain will quell internal dissent as economically these countries uh, obviously perform uh, worse in the burgeoning new global economy of alliances and geopolitical uh, uh, entrepreneurial uh, money exchange? In this Cold War, the uh, societal repression is 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 quite tough. I mean, the closing of uh, of alternative media channels, and of course, as you say, on a global level, uh, Russia RT, of course, plays an important part in Chinese media and Indian media to provide that diversity uh, of views, which is uh, being limited in some of the heartlands of of the political West. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's I I, I fear that. Uh, especially if things go even worse in Southwest Asia and Gaza and in Ukraine, then uh, we, we could see some very nasty, uh, unpleasant repression in, uh, in Western Europe and the United States. I mean, I'm just thinking about poverty in Britain. Uh, we know the increasing poverty statistics uh, in the country you're speaking to me from. I mean, will there just have to be greater budgets on policing? Uh, as the economies uh, decline? Well, at the moment, all of that is uh, on hold because we've got an election coming up within the next year. Uh, and it looks as if, uh, you know, the alternative Labour Party uh, is in pole position. We've seen this in local by-elections. Uh, but of course, I'm not, I, I think that the United Kingdom has suffered from a crisis of bad governance uh, for generations, uh, Labour and Conservative. And there's uh, you know the 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 sources of renewal is not entirely clear. You know, it used to be trade unions, church movements, peace movements, other political movements, and at the moment there seems to be a total stagnation in ideas of how to make Britain a better society, as you say, a more just society, uh, and indeed a better governed society. And that's desperately something that we need. Professor Richard Sackwell, thank you. And uh, the new book, The Lost Peace, How the West Failed to Prevent a Second Cold War, is out now. That's it for the show. Remember, we're bringing you brand new episodes every Saturday and Monday. Until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. And head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you soon.